Would you please open your Bibles to Malachi, the third chapter. Malachi is right before the book of Matthew. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And we've been in it, this is our fifth week. So I think we will, uh, this is probably our last week in Malachi. And um, we'll be finishing up at least most of the third chapter here. So while you're turning there, I'll start with a thought. I'd like to talk about, begin by talking about uh, gambling, uh, in particular, uh, the lottery. Uh, at some point in our marriage, my wife and I, we lived in South Georgia, and we really like Georgia. It was our heart to return to this area of the country uh, for ministry, but uh, we liked it, Georgia. And had the Lord had other plans, we would have been just fine with that uh, at some level. And I remember along the way, visiting with somebody while we lived in Georgia, uh, who was touting the merits of Georgia. And he said something like this, and I'm going to get the particulars wrong, but the heart of it's right. He said, you know, what really good deal down here is if your kids have a really good GPA, they can go to a state school for free. And I went... Like, how does that work? Nothing's for free. And he said, well, the state lottery pays for it. And I did not have a lot of opinions about gambling or the lottery prior to this point. This was the very first point in my personal memory where I winced at the concept. I thought, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. Or it doesn't sound good. Fair has nothing to do with it. It doesn't sound good. And... In my mind, it made these these connections. These all of a sudden, these connections just sort of came to the forefront. Which was, for one, I was raised like had I bought a lottery, had I been a lottery ticket buyer as a kid, I would have heard about it. Like I would I would have been well parented out of it. You know that we don't we don't build our future uh, on a fantasy. We value, we value the work God's called us to. I mean, there's some deep principles there. Had I seen my kids buying lottery tickets, I'd slap their hand and said, what is that? Get that out of here. We don't do that. Um, and I'm just, I, by the way, this will sound a little rough for some of you, but I, I'm just sharing you sort of how, how what was going on inside of me. And what, this is the feeling I had when I heard that the state lottery will pay for uh, my kids to go to college if they have a good GPA. I, this principle just came out, which is, well, mi- most of the kids with the good GPAs are from homes who aren't buying lottery tickets. That's what I thought. I thought it was my children's college tuition is being paid largely off of preying on the vice of families whose kids will not qualify for the benefit. And that didn't seem right to me that the state would prey upon the weaknesses of some of its own citizens so that, I mean, and you can go and Google it all you want. This is, all the studies show that the lowest socioeconomic brackets of our community buy the largest share of lottery tickets. So anyway, I moved to Delaware and... 
in about 2009, the economy took a downturn. And in our, this state, and by the way, anything I say here could be true for Pennsylvania, Maryland, and New Jersey. All of these states get tremendous amounts of revenue from the gambling industry. Tremendous amounts of revenue. They are all dependent upon it for their economy. And so when the economy took a downturn in Delaware, there was a lot of talk about, well, we don't want to do this, but it looks like we're going to have to expand the gambling industry. Tough times call for tough measures. And I remember thinking to myself, well, if it wasn't right to do when good years, why is it right to do now? And this is the question. When is it right to do the wrong thing? When is it right to do the wrong thing? That's the question I want us to lead into, allow us to lead into the scriptures. It's going to surface this question of when is it right to do the wrong thing is going to surface later on in the sermon and it's going to sort of stare at us. Okay, so I'm starting with something that is a large, we might at least enjoy the thought that it's institutional even though we all voted. <laughs> we all play a role in this, so let's not disconnect ourselves from it. Uh, but it's a little more institutional. It's going to surface a little more personally here in a moment. When is it right to do the wrong thing. You know, when times get tough, when life gets difficult, there's all sorts of reasons, all sorts of times you need to make compromises. I get that. You know, we've had years where we had to tighten the belt or years where we have to sort of let go of some things we enjoy or adjust our lifestyle or let go of something that was important or alter our dreams or change the retirement date, all of those sorts of things. Like, life is tough and it calls for decisions. When is the right time to do the wrong thing is the question. When is an appropriate time to make a moral compromise? That's the question that I'm asking this morning. And this is the question that's going to surface in Malachi. We're going to start in the third chapter, verse 6, which is where we ended last week. So this verse 6 does a really beautiful job of speaking to the issue above it and addressing the issue that's coming below it. And uh, I'm going to read two verses, 6 and 7. Here's what the Lord says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how will we return? Last week we talked about this passage, for I the Lord do not change, therefore you as sons of Jacob will not be consumed. We talked about the meaning in that is that because the mercy of God is part of his nature, we have hope. If the Lord were simply just, there'd be no hope. That was last Sunday. Justice is not what we want. We want mercy. And because mercy is part of the intrinsic character of God, we have hope. And because he's not going to change from that, we always, there's this thought out there that if we return to the Lord, the Lord will return to us, which is such a blessing, especially among the people who were given a law, right? The, the covenant of Moses or the law, the, the code of life that defined what it means to be God's people or Israel. It was built on a notion of blessings and curses, life and death. The Lord said, I'm giving you the land. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to do these things for you. And in return, you will be my children and you'll seek after no other God and you'll do these sorts of things and you'll orient your life in this sorts of way. There was a quid pro quo. There was a, a this for that. There was 
an if-then among the people of God. And yet he is still merciful. So he says here, since the days, since the days of old, you have always wandered away from me. Now, if God were just just, there'd be no hope. But he says, but if you return to me, I'll return to you. The response of the people, he presumes, is that they would say to this, how do we need to return to you? In other words, like, (laughs) wait a second, what are we doing wrong? Now, I suppose in your ears you could say, well, maybe you could say it like an inquisitive, like, how, Lord, are we supposed to return to you? Or you could make it even desperate, like, oh, Lord, oh, that we could return to you. But those are wrong answers. It just doesn't sound that way. If you take the whole book together, if you read the whole book, the whole book is built on God making a claim and the people responding in a hard-hearted way with a question. So the book starts with the Lord saying, you know, I've loved you, to which they say, how have you loved us? Which is followed up with, you know, where's the honor and the fear that I'm due? I don't get it from the priests who despise my name, to which they say, how did we despise your name? Or he's going to say, you've dealt treacherously with one another and you, you, you're evil against one another. Then you come to the altar and you cry over the altar because God is mysteriously silent. And you ask, why is he silent? Or the next one, which is you've wearied the Lord when you talk about justice. And they say, when did we weary the Lord? Or today, you know, return to me. How shall we return? Or in a few verses, you're robbing me. How have we robbed you? Or in a few more verses later, you have had hard words against me. How have our words been hard against you? The whole book is built on the Lord trying to break through a hard heart, putting in front of them things they're doing wrong, trying to chip away at a self-righteousness before him. And this is what this said. The questions are loaded. The whole book is built around these loaded questions. And verse 8 has the answer. God's going to answer their loaded question, and then they're going to give a loaded question in light of his answer. So here's what he says in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're robbing God in your tithes and contributions. Let me talk about tithe for a second. Tithe is an old English word for tenth. Okay, that's all the tithe means. In the Hebrew, the word is tenth. And in the English, we confuse ourselves by picking a word nobody uses anymore. And then we say tithe. It just means tenth. That's what it means. In the Jewish law, every year, the people were to bring before to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the priests, a tenth of all of what they had, all the produce, all of the gain, all of, all of the gain for that year. One tenth would come to Jerusalem. And the purpose of it was to account for the lives and the ministries of the priestly tribe, the Levites. That's how the Levites were sustained. And that would happen every year, except that every third of those years, so it was happening every year, but 
on the third of those years, the tithe, the tenth, instead of coming like to the main storage house of the Levi's, it stayed in your village. It stayed in the local village to care for the local ministers, the local Levites of that area and for the orphans and for the widows. So every third tenth was intended for the local care. That's the tithe. In addition to tithes, there were, what the word here is contributions. Some of your Bibles might say offerings. There were other offerings. So there were certain festivals, the festival of first fruits, the Passover. There were times where other offerings would be brought to Jerusalem. And the Lord is saying, it's in how you've managed your, the 10th that I've commanded you to give me and your offerings that you're robbing me. You're not giving me what I've commanded you to give me. The tenth was more than a religious tax. So it was not just cost for services rendered. It had a spiritual purpose. And this was the purpose. The purpose of the tenth was to keep in the minds and in the remembrance of the people the notion that God had given them the land. God had entrusted the land to the people and the people were therefore entrusted to God. So when there was a great harvest, the attention of the people should have been before the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this harvest. And the tenth was a way of keeping that among the people. In fact, there was a big ceremony, a big festival. Every time the tithe would come in, every annual time the feast would come in, people would bring part of their tenth to a big national potluck dinner. And it didn't matter if you were broke and all you brought was a basket of apples because that's all that's you didn't do well that year. And over here, you were wealthy and you brought 30 head of cattle in. It was all shared. It was all shared in this big feast together where they all remembered what the Lord said. In fact, when you brought a symbolic basket of your tithe to the priest, you would say the story of what God had done. My father was, our father was a wandering Aramean. And he was given this land, but he did not settle in this land because we were led into Egypt and we were oppressed in slavery. But you, O Lord, have brought us out. There's, Deuteronomy gives you the words to say. Remember that I gave it to you, says the Lord. Remember that the fruitfulness of your life comes from his hand, says the Lord. That was the spiritual purpose of the tithe. There was a practical purpose. The practical purpose was to provide so that the priests and the priestly tribe, the Levites, could serve in righteousness, so they could do their job, so they could minister, so that they could teach, so that they could instruct, so that they could offer counsel, so that they could do those things. One of the prophets, the prophet of Haggai, talks about this. The people stop giving the tithe, and one of the ways they know it is because the the priests are out in the fields harvesting. What are they doing out there, one of them asked. It was a way of caring for the poor. It was a very practical way. And in God's way, what he often does is make the practical side of your life connect to the spiritual very intimately so that what you're doing reflects what you're thinking. And the tithe is one of the, is, might be the perfect way of expressing this. I think the tithe and the Sabbath might be two of the best. What we do reflects what we think about God. 
So, in a very practical way, and I'm going to say this, by the way, like in several different ways. So some of you are going to say he's being redundant. It's just because I think it's important. If they didn't remember what God did, they would not care for the priests and for the poor. Right? If, they, if, they, if they lost a sense of, wow, my harvest has come because God has entrusted this land to me and because God brings rain and because God protects me from the elements, all of these things, because God does this is why I have what I have. If they don't have that mindset, they end up not tithing. And when they end up not tithing, it looks, you can see it. You can see it. So the condition of the Levites, the condition of the temple, the condition of the orphans, the condition of the widows, those visible conditions, those very practical conditions speak to how the people think of God. The land was entrusted to the people and the people were entrusted to God and the mathematical number God used was 10, 10%. 10% is enough that you have to have a reason to do it and it's not so much that it's gonna overburden if you recognize that I gave you, give me back 10, says the Lord. Another way of thinking about this is that their financial obedience to God is a weather vane or a litmus of their heart. They connect. They connect very... Maybe the best way I can say it is, is our faith always has a way of making its way to the hands. Our faith always has a way of making its its way to our hands. And, and that's how the tithe shows up. So, I mean, one question I would start with this morning as we're sort of working into the text is, what is the evidence of faith in your life that's showing up in what you're doing? Just begin to think about that. How is your faith, because you have faith in something, how is your faith being expressed? Here, he's saying, you don't have faith in me because you're robbing me of what I've asked for. Let's watch it develop. Verse nine. You are cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you, he says. You're cursed with a curse. Things are going bad in Israel right now. That's what God's pointing to. Things are going really bad in Israel. In verse 11, we'll read that it seems even like there might have been a plague of locusts because he'll talk about the devourer, which is a word that they would use for locusts, that there might have been a drought from some of the language. Either way, we know this is a low point in, in the history of Israel and things are going bad. And he's saying to them, you're in the midst of a curse and yet you're not turning to me. Now just think about that for a second. You're in the midst of a curse and you're not turning to me. When, when hardship falls on somebody who claims to have God in their heart, when hardship falls on you, you're at an important crossroads. And, and one of the things you can do is you can run back to God. Lord, help me. Lord, to you I turn. Lord, what, you know, and this is where we often ask those questions, Lord, is it something I've done that's brought this hardship? Or we go through that whole sort of spectrum of questions and all of that in, in this particular direction, all of that works to draw us closer to the Lord. Is, Lord, 
I'm looking to you for salvation. That's the first, that's the first way that we can respond. Or we can respond another way, which is our material problems are just too much right now to worry ourselves about God, which is what he's saying they're doing. He's saying, you're in the midst of a curse. You're in the midst, in the land that God's given you where things aren't going well, and yet you are choosing not. You're saying, listen, this is a real problem. Am I financially strapped? This is the wrong time to tithe. He's saying this is the absolute time to tithe. You see it? One translation I read chose to translate it this way, which I think catches the heart. You're in the midst of a curse, yet still you do not tithe. The whole nation of you. See how that was said? Here, the people are saying, we're too broke to tithe, or the situation's too dire to tithe. Somehow the curse is so severe that obedience to God is, is, for them, this is the right time to do the wrong thing. Because times are tough. Difficulty is never a reason to disobey. And we should say this, that obedience is not a luxury of the blessed. Obedience is the necessity of the redeemed. You don't obey because you're blessed. We obey because we've been saved by God. It's, it doesn't, it's not weather dependent. Faith always finds its way of making its way to the hands of what you do. And I want to ask you, how has hardship, how has some hardship become a form of excuse in your life for not living obediently towards the Lord? Is there a way that you've let that happen? It's just something in your life where you've said, Lord, in this occasion, it's the right thing to do the wrong thing. Because... I don't think you were thinking of this when you called me to obedience. At the very least, maybe we can let this, this text preach to that. Let's look at the next several verses, 10 through 12. God says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We'll get to the question of testing in a second, but it's the first phrase that catch, caught my attention. Bring in the full tenth. Bring in the full tenth. Why does he see the need to say that? It gives me the impression that they're not bringing the whole tenth to God, just some, like a one-th or a tooth of the tithe. It's been a hard year. We're in a rough patch. It's been a bad harvest. It's been inflation. You know inflation, how that works. Taxes. Whew, taxes. 
I can bring a warmth. Do you know that uh, in this text right here in Malachi that the Israelites are under the oppression of Persia? So they're paying tax to Persia, in case you were wondering already. As the Lord says, bring in the full tithe. At one point in the New Testament, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they have some money in their hand with Caesar's face on it and they think, ha ha, we got him. We're gonna corner him on the question. They say, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? This is, this is in their heart. Are we supposed to give to you or to Caesar? To which Jesus says, we'll render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. He upholds the principle. Now this, I, I assume that this teaching is coming close to some of you. Not because I know what you give, because I don't. I'm firewalled from that as I should be, and I'm happy, happy with that. But I'm not dumb, and I can do math. So I know our budget, and even if I'm modest in my estimation, this teaching preaches. This is a nation that is under hard times. And they think that it's the right time to do the wrong thing. And God says, bring in the full tithe. Maybe another thing that happened, maybe it's not circumstances, maybe the meaning of the tithe has changed. I was wondering about this. Maybe they, just after years of chronic disobedience, they've lost a sense for it, just like I assume a lot of you didn't even know that tithing meant tenth because I learned that not too long ago. You know, so what is tithing? Maybe they thought, maybe it's turned into some sort of token offering like uh, an offering of generosity, like a thanks God gift, like, oh, well, we got to keep the heat on sort of activity. That's not what it is. It's an activity, it is a spiritual exercise for you to remember that your life comes from God and that he sustained you. you. He's given you, he's entrusted things to you and you are entrusting yourself to him. That's what this is. Faithfulness is not a gesture. It requires remembrance that produces reliance. I want to say that again. Faithfulness is not a gesture. It requires the kind of remembrance of God that produces reliance on God. Do you rely on God? The world is his. That's the point of the tithe, is that you would be reminded the world belongs to God and you are in God's hands. That's the point of the tithe. You belong to him. Faith always makes its way to your hands. What you think translates into what you do. So I want to ask you this. What's between you and the whole tenth? And in this, uh, the way I thought we could do it is put in front of this question, I don't believe, as you try to answer it, I don't believe, and then say what you want to say to yourself. Like, I don't believe the Bible teaches a tenth. Okay, well, we could, that would be a starting point. I would recommend you read Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12. Uh, but... Maybe you say that. I don't believe the Bible teaches a tenth. Or, or, I don't believe I can afford to tithe. At least that helps you sort of figure out, well, where's, 
the question of faith. Or, I don't believe it all needs to go to the local church, which is something we can talk about. Or, I don't believe... What is it? What's between you and the whole tenth? Maybe, I mean, maybe nothing. Maybe it is I do believe and I'm enjoying right now, which is, your, which is your great blessing, by the way. I'm enjoying right now sitting in a place where I'm at peace with God. He says after this, put me to the test. Now, it's not like a dare. It's more like uh, the mood's more pleasant than that. I think the intent of the Hebrew, more like a please. Oh, that you would count on me. That's what he wants. Oh, that my people would count on me. Oh, that they would wake up in a life relying on me. That's what God wants. God's working in you not to extinguish faith, but to make you full of faith. Oh, that my people relied and needed me. That's what I think what's in this idea of testing. I wish you would just press me on this and watch me. Step towards me, and guess what I'll do? I'll step towards you. That's how this started. Now, and in this, by the way, are all these really beautiful uh, sentences. It's just, if you have an agricultural mindset, you hear it, I'll, I'll open the window of heaven and pour down blessing, right? I'll destroy the devourer. So the locusts, I'll eat the locusts, or I'll destroy the locusts. The people will call you. The land will be plentiful and people will call you blessed. There's this beautiful image of prosperity. Don't you realize what's in my hands? Now, I want to confess to you or just share with you that over my life, I've heard this taught in some strange ways, this little area. This little area is kind of a strange area. And by the way, I committed to not coming to you with this passage in the building program because I thought that's what always happens. So we'll just let Malachi... Bring it to us naturally. But the way I sometimes hear it, it pulls at the parts in me. This is how I know. Something ain't right. Is sometimes the way this is taught yanks at things in me that I try to, I'm trying to kill. It like blows on the coals of things I'm trying to snuff out. Kind of like this. Kind of like when it's pitched as an investment strategy. You know? Tell you what. All I need is 10% startup. You put 10% down the Lord, you can't even imagine. And then we give it a little bit of religious talk, like sow a seed of faith. Just what you just need to do is sow a seed of faith. And boy, brother, blessings are going to come down upon you. You're going to be so rich. You're going to be driving in the best thing and living in the best thing. You can't imagine how good your life is going to be. Well, if that's how it's taught, where's worship in that, by the way? That fans the flames of my materialism. I'm doing that for me. That's vainglory and self-gain all the time. God's not trying to do that at all. At all. He's simply saying, if you rely on me, guess what you're going to find out? You're going to find out that God's reliable. And that's a blessing. It's a blessing all by itself. He's saying you're not praying to a catalyst God. You're praying to a God who has all the cattle of the whole world at his disposal, and you still refuse to rely on me. He's saying, give it a chance. Tithing is intended to be an act of worship. It is the fruit of a very good memory of God. It's a clear understanding of what God has done for you. 
And it produces faith that God is reliable to the end, worthy of trust. Because you know what God's going to do? When he's proven himself reliable to you, he's going to ask you for more, and then he's going to prove himself reliable to you, ask you for more. And when the end of the day comes, you are going to be reliable and faithful to God. That's what he's doing. That brings us to today. What about now? Some of you might say, you might have in your hip pocket, aren't we free from the law? You've been wondering, why isn't he saying that? He's getting all legalistic on us, saying the 10th. (laughs) We're free from the law. You've been having that one ready for the drive home. Not so quick. I've anticipated your escape hatch. Let's just follow some of the principles of Scripture. There's lots of things we're free from in the Old Testament. Does that mean the Old Testament is rubbish? No. No. With Christ revealed, we now dive headlong into the Old Testament, and it's revealed to us what God's been trying to do. It's, It's like the chalkboard of work that God's written out, that with Christ we can understand. So we see something in the Old Testament that we're now free of, and why are we free of it? We're free because it doesn't make us righteous. Jesus Christ makes us righteous. So now, now I no longer look, have to look at this limited, marred, fractional expression of righteousness, but rather I can look at all of righteousness because I'm safe in God. That's what happens with the Old Testament. So we see things in the Old Testament all the time that we go, well, we're free from that, but we're not free from that to do less. We're free from that to do more. So, The case to tithe, the whole premise to tithe was that God rescued the people from Egypt and placed them in the promised land. Do you have a better story of redemption than that or a worse story of redemption than that? Far better. We haven't been rescued from Egypt. We've been rescued from sin and death and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. Now, So we're free from the law, but we're freed into a much bigger story of redemption. I'm not, we shouldn't be less motivated to remember something. We should be more motivated to remember something. We don't have a smaller story to talk about. We have a greater story to talk about. So that when Jesus says things like, it's written, you shouldn't murder. But we go, ha ha, we're free from the law. He goes, you're right. Because I say, don't even be angry in your heart against your brother. Right? Now that we're free, now that this doesn't have to make us righteous, it can expand. God can show us the full breadth of his desire for righteousness to us because it's not a threat anymore. I'm righteous in Christ, so tell me the whole story, God, right? Tell me everything. And he says, well, I don't even want you to ever be angry in the wrong sort of way. Had you known that the whole time, you'd have been fearful, I'd have smited you. But because of the love of Jesus Christ that I poured out on you, you're safe to know my intent for you. It's not less, it's more. Rest on the Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews says, in Christ we should enter into the great rest of God. We should be a people at rest. We should be a people at peace. We should be walking Sabbaths in a world that's crazy. That's what we should be. How much more important is it for us to gather together on a day and sing and talk and praise God for his story of redemption now because we have so much more to be thankful for. So, are you free from the tithe? Sure. To do less? Mm. 
follow the path of God on that. And listen, you don't have to worry because he has not changed. Therefore, you're not consumed. Return to him and he'll return to you. God calls us to more. Right? Anyone wants to follow me, deny themselves daily, take up their cross and follow me. Does that sound like less or more than the tithe? Does it sound like when Paul was converted, did he become a faithful tither? Or did he devote his life? We have so much more. I'm going to close with a different reading. 16 through 18. This is the end of the chapter. I think this, there should be a break here. I think 16 through 18 is describing a period of time where the people who were under the teaching of Malachi stepped back and they just took it all in. Okay, and I want you to hear this. I want you, especially if you've been here through the teaching of Malachi, I want you to be, be these people. Okay, so among all of the people, this is what it says in 16, there were those who feared the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Now think about that. That comes from the mouth of the Lord who delivered up his own son so that you might live. Think about that. Like all that he's done for you, he sees this group of people who in the light of all that Malachi says, they turn to one another and they go, we have not lived rightly. We have not done well. And he says, that, I see that and I'm writing your name down in the book. I don't know, is that the book of life? I don't know. I'm writing your name down and I'm going to remember it. You remembered me, therefore I'm going to remember you. You've turned to me, I'm going to turn to you. 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between righteous and wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You could say the thesis of the whole Bible is this. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. Let's pray, Lord. We pray that your ministry uh, through Malachi would be on our hearts, that we would not, in any of these ways, look for a way to do less, but uh, the opportunity to do more, to lean on you, Lord, for your, so that you could show yourself trustworthy so that we might be a people who one day says, our God is reliant, wholly reliable. Which is why we are full of faith. We pray, Lord, over all the questions that have uh, been stirred up and kicked up, we pray that your spirit would have supremacy in the ways that they're answered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.